Welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by Caliber Mind. Our goal on the RMR is to help marketers move from subject matter experts to strategic business partners. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce Andres Moran. Andres, can you please give us a little background? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. So yeah, I'm Andres Moran. I'm a VP and, and GM at Wonderkin. Uh, we used to be called Bounce X, and before that, we were actually Bounce Exchange. So we've gone through a few different names, but the latest iteration that we're going to stick with is Wonderkin. And uh, we've built what can best be described as a marketing operating system. So we enable marketers to deliver one-to-one individualized messaging at scale, right? So that can be through customized on-site messaging on, on an e-commerce site or a media site, as well as via triggered emails, individualized text messages, and even through advertising across our premium publisher sites or media sites. It's that last piece that I am the GM of. So I, I oversee the, the PL of, of that media business. And I've been at the company about, about five years now. Great. So when we were talking about topics, I had a uh, memory pop in my head and we had this really dynamic CEO at one of the companies that I was at, John Holt. And one of his mantras was everybody's in sales and we all had to learn how to pitch. At the time, I didn't get it. But can you tell me why this is true from your perspective? Yeah, I, w- I, would, ag- I would agree with that as well. I do believe everyone is in sales and so many different facets of, of what we do regardless of your role is in sales. But I think it's important to probably define sales. I think a lot of people think it's a four letter word, right? Where, you know, it's, you know, one-sided and, and slimy and, and, and self-interested and brings up images of, of Boiler Room or Wolf of Wall Street or Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, somewhat dating myself there. But when I hear that, I really think of more like enterprise sales, which is much more thoughtful, much more, empathetic. So I think we just need to reframe that that definition and then I would totally totally agree with it. And that type of that type of sale it requires, you know, the building of trust and rapport. It requires the understanding of what matters to to the other side that you're speaking with. What are their pain points? What are their goals? How can you help them be more successful? How can you get them to want to be your champion? So as long as we look at sales that way, then absolutely, completely agree. And so when you think about it in your arc or your your journey, regardless of what your role is, you're going to be involved in sales throughout that journey, even starting through when the company is recruiting you. You, of course, selling them on the value you can bring to the company. Once within the company, you're selling them on resources that you will need in order to be successful in your role and to deliver on that value, that covenant that you have with the company. And then you need to sell them even once you've shown, or, or excuse me, once you've had successes demonstrating that success and getting them to see that, that's that's also an element of sales. And then when you feel you might warrant a, a promotion or even a compensation increase, of course, that comes with with elements of sales. And you're when you're hiring other people to, to join your team, you got to sell them on that vision and that dream. So I think it applies in, in your personal life, right? So I have two young kids. I can tell you that being a parent <laughs> is a lot of sales when I want to get my kids to do something. So I would definitely uh, agree with that fact that everybody is in sales. Well, I would say it also comes into marriage because there's a lot of uh, <laughs> negotiation oh, yeah. and 
Yes. For those of you sitting there shaking your head saying, I got into the technology side, so I just keep my head down and do my job well and then be recognized for that. For those of you who want to climb in your career, the sooner you realize that establishing relationships and understanding where other people are coming from is key to negotiating resources, exactly like you said, technology, all of these different things. I just, I think that really opens up a lot of opportunities for people. And one of the areas I see a lot of us in operations struggle is negotiating. And that's, uh, it could be resources, headcount, it could be salary, title. I would love to hear from you what the key things are that you need to understand about the person you're negotiating with before you engage with them. Yeah, this is actually, so negotiation is, it's in the later stage of a sales process. It just happens to be that one component of the sales process I happen to, to enjoy. And I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and also just conjures up some of that negative connotation. But negotiating is, is something that everyone should feel comfortable with something that they deserve. You have to eliminate any sense of imposter syndrome. But the key is that you, sh- you, know, you shouldn't enter a negotiation until you've built that trust and rapport with whoever you're negotiating with and that you, know, you understand what matters to them and that you're not guessing or even assuming about what matters to them, but you explicitly ask and know what matters to them. And then, and then at that point, you, I think it's safe to, to go into, in, into a, no, uh, a negotiation. I think also it's important to have the mentality. It's, it's not a zero-sum game. It should not be a zero-sum mentality. There is no winner or loser in a negotiation. Both parties should feel good leaving that negotiation. It's part of the it's part of the journey of a partnership. And chances are that you're going to be continuing to have a working relationship with this individual. As such, you should always consider how, how they'll perceive their outcome after the fact. And always conduct yourself, of course, with integrity and class, as I'm sure all of you would. One thing I like, uh, you know, kind of like a little bit of a secret sauce is letting that other person know why you value them or what they can bring you. And if you're at an organization, why you love the organization so much. And I think this is important because it, you know, it, sets, it sets a friendly tone. Uh, but then on top of that, it's, it's kind of sneaky because it, it allows your, your, any pushback that you give or any no's that you give to just feel more authentic. Because if they know just how much you value them and, and what they can do for you, and yet you still can't concede on something, then they'll be like, oh, wow, I know they really want to work with me or they want this and that. And they can't concede on this. That means they legitimately cannot concede on that. So it just it just gives a little more umph behind your nose when they know how much you, in fact, value them and care and want to and want to work with them. The other thing that's really important is to to always explain why you are asking for something right, or why you're taking a certain certain position. Sometimes it's just the other individual that your counterparty just needs to hear the word because, right? You could sometimes say, I want this because the sky is blue. I'm, I'm being somewhat facetious, of course. You know, you I want to I want to jump in really quickly, though. But what doesn't work and I've seen happen is why do you want this raise? Well, I'm going to buy a house soon right. or I want a car or, <laughs> you no. know, this that's very honest and I admire that. But a much more effective argument might be, hey, uh, I'm being actively recruited and I know that the standard market rate is X. 
That's right. That's right. And then, and, you know, I think we, we can touch upon that too, is you, you mentioned standard market rates, you mentioned the value, you demonstrate the value of given to the company, how much you care about the company and that your worth is, you feel is now this. It's not, yeah, it shouldn't be self-interested, but you need to understand how is this going to actually help your counterpart or help the organization. And by, if it comes, if it's a compensation conversation is by leveling up, I'm going to be taking on this much more responsibility or, Hey, I've already been operating at this level, right? Yeah. So why don't we now match that compensation to this uh, superior level that I've already been performing at? Yeah. And if you can tie numbers to what you've been doing, like as you're doing projects, figure out the impact to the business, figure out how much time you're saving people, figure out how much revenue you're uncovering, because all of those data points can be pulled together and say, hey, I uncovered three million in revenue. I definitely am performing at this level. This is what I deserve or this is what I should be earning. That's exactly right. And that's part of a, that goes back to how everyone is in sales. You are demonstrating the value that you've, you've given. And that involves bringing that to light and, and having that person unequivocally understand, yes, wow, this person is so, so valuable. And it's oftentimes in a negotiation too. And you want to be careful when it comes to employment conversations, but you want to create a sense of FOMO, like hint at what would happen if we don't arrive at an agreement. And if you can give you know, kind of hint at additional options and what would happen and that fear of missing out if we don't arrive at an agreement. Now, again, it's very sensitive when it comes to employment because you never want to come off as threatening. That's that's definitely, that's a big no-no. I would say you never want to come off as threatening, but there should be that air of, there are other options here, right? And, yeah. you know, it's important that we arrive at, a, at an agreement. Uh, otherwise, you, you know, there, you, you know, X, Y, and Z FOMO, you know, could set in. Another thing I would say too, there are some schools of thought that would say when negotiating, hey, if you want to, if you want to ultimately end up at, um, let's just, I'm using simple, ridiculous number. You want to end up at 50. Okay. You should first start at 80 because everything's going to be negotiated down to 50, which is where you want to end up. I am personally diabolically opposed to that school of thought. I think if you ultimately want to end up at 50, you come out and you say 50 or right around there and then you support it and you defend it because what happens if you start at 80 and then bring it it gets you know beat down to 50 and you accept that your counterpart is gonna be like wait a second you accepted 50 and that's all good why why would why did you initially come out at 80 and i think it it's not a good look right it it discredits you so i'm a big fan of coming out with where you want to be and 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 defend it defend it well with some good clean logic that they can understand with some you know clear data as you mentioned and also it's good if you can to have multiple talking points so if, if you're negotiating around just one single like number or one single point there's less flexibility there's less meat on the bone if you will to work with ideally if you can you know with compensation you know uh, agreements with other things like equity or you know base compensation you know base salary and then there's variable Compensation. Oftentimes, there's more flexibility around variable compensation or or even equity than there is base. So, uh, ideally, there are multiple level levers that can be pulled to make sure that each side's priorities can be met and you arrive at that at that common ground. So, ideally, you, yeah, it's not just one single point or number that is that is that is being discussed. 
Yeah, and you made a couple great points that I just want to emphasize. So the first one is if you come in at a really high price, even if you start with, hey, I really love working here, I love the people, and then move into the butt, <laughs> if you come in at a really high price, they're, you're going to negate all the positive things you said about the company and they're going to say, maybe this person just doesn't want to be here anymore. Like that's, that's way out of bounds because you have to expect your boss is talking to other people in the market. They, especially in marketing operations, they see how high demand all of these positions are and are hearing about the salary increases. So if you come in way high, they're going to be like, I just don't even know what we could do to make you happy. That's exactly right. I think expressing, having that air of gratitude at all times is really important. Like, I'm grateful to be here. I am grateful for the work I do and the, my current compensation. However, I've been performing at this higher level, so I think I deserve this. Or not deserve this, excuse me, you know, the word deserves is a difficult word to use, but yeah. you know, we should match the compensation to, to, to where I've been working. And, and, I th- and, I, and you, you also brought up another great point there, in my opinion, as a you know, I've hired hundreds and hundreds of people, it's important to to have a company first mentality and not a me first mentality. I think those that have that company first mentality and think like an owner, have an owner's mentality, they will be much more successful in those conversations because the other individual that needs to approve that comp increase knows that, wow, this person does care about what we're building here. They're here for the long term. They're not having just a, a me first myopic view in this conversation. And so those people, I think, will fare much better in those conversations if they do convey a company first mentality. Have you been burned by attribution? Are you tired of fighting with salespeople over target accounts and lead scores? We've all been there, and that's because traditional marketing analytics tools bolt onto your CRM and calculate attribution and engagement scores on the data as it is. And let's face it, most of the time, your CRM data is far from perfect. Caliber Mind is unique because it pulls data from all your sources, not just your CRM, into a data platform. Caliber Mind unifies your information, which means you can attribute dollars to website activity, standard Salesforce campaign activity, and more without wasting time in spreadsheets. Ditch the spreadsheets and check out a new way to analyze revenue data with Caliber Mind at calibermind.com. Now that said, I think some of the best career advice I've gotten from a past employer was you are the only one who has your best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. So if you start to suspect you're paid way under market, you need to start negotiating up. It is important to realize that you need to have your best interests at heart. And if this is really, really important to you, you need to be able to look at all of your options. That is true. That is absolutely true. Look at all your options. You're your own best advocate. What what we do at Wonderkid is we have comp, compensation bands. So if you're at a certain uh, seniority level, you will fall within a certain you know band. And within that band, you know every year there could be some comp increases within that band, so long as you're still at that at that level. Uh, but that that avoids biases. That avoids any inequality that could be applied across the organization. And so for for us as an employer, it's a much safer practice to have those bands. And it also allows us, like if someone comes in with a ridiculous compensation request, whether that be an existing employee or or someone that we're trying to recruit into the company, 
we can lean on these bands saying, hey, there's a reason we have these bands mm -hmm. and that's to prevent inequalities because I always think if we put everyone's salary on the front page of the New York Times, would we feel good about it? Can we defend it? Can we go ahead and defend it and, and no one would be upset or feel you know, resentment or betrayed from what they saw there on that cover of the New York Times? That's, that's how we approach it. Yeah, I like that. So let's talk about how negotiation comes into play in your job currently. So I'm in a bit of a unique situation, I suppose you can say, in the sense that I am the GM, which is kind of like a GM is like a mini CEO, let's just call it, of a business unit that was not the core business of the company. And you know the challenge there is that it's not the core business of the company. And so um, at first you are kind of the black sheep because it wasn't the initial mission that the company was established for. And so you need to go in there and, 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 and negotiate for resources and sell, sell the, the management on the vision that you have for this business unit. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's not, it's not easy in the case, in my case specifically, well, at least it, well, it's a lot easier now. I've been in it for five years and fortunately we have great people in place and we've done a great job growing this business unit. So it now contributes about 20% of the company's revenue, which is meaningful. But in the you know, four or five years ago, when we were contributing 2% of the company's revenue and certain uh, executives were like, why do we even have this business unit? It takes a lot of selling and, and negotiating. And a lot of that is saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of this work myself in the early days as opposed to hiring for it so that I can prove it out. So that, that's how it's worked for me specifically in this role. I've also had examples of really crazy negotiating that's happened in the past. In a previous company that I'd co-founded, there was we wanted a, the Twitter handle of the, of the company name, but that Twitter handle was held by this lawyer in Venezuela that had a farm. It's totally random. Had this farm that had the same name as the company that we were that you know that we were starting, and so I needed to negotiate for the payment for this. This Twitter would probably be really upset if I mentioned this, by the way. So good thing I'm going on the record with it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what editing is for. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> fine. You can keep it. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. And so I did negotiate with this individual, but like it's in a com it's a completely vague number. How, how much is a Twitter handle worth? Right? There is no answer to that. And in situations where there's no good sense of hey, what is a ballpark of what the value should be? It is really good for you to come out first with the number. And so in that situation, I came out first. I just, I just anchored them at a thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. And so even if they're in, in their minds before even a number was thrown out, they thought, Oh, maybe we'll get $10,000 for this. When you throw out that first number in a very vague value, uh, you know, vague, vague value exchange, throwing out that first number has a lot, a lot of benefit. That's obviously not the case when it comes to, market salaries and compensation, but in really one-off weird negotiations, I highly advise that. Yes. Yeah. I, I can think of some circumstances where I have benefited from that. And that would be like a startup tech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the technology seems cool. It's not completely baked. I'm not going to pay the full price for that. And then if you start out at a lower price point, you can usually negotiate pretty well. But Let's talk about something you're an expert at, is, and that is arguing for more resources. So when it comes to 
finagling for extra head count, what are some of the most effective angles you can take with, let's say, a CFO or a CEO? So I, I like the, you know, crawl, walk, run. Um, it's important and it's kind of obvious perhaps, but you don't want to come in and say, oh, I need three sellers, for example, to go and sell this new product that we've built. First off, you sell the, you know, for, for me, I, I was selling the product first for the most part. Once we show what's the quote unquote product market fit and we have a pretty good blueprint down for how we sell this and what matters to the customers, then you can go in and ask for maybe one seller. And at the same time, you're probably still borrowing engineers and borrowing product managers from the core company. Mm-hmm. But okay, let's get sellers. And, and it's, it's about managing that growth in lockstep with product and engineering and sales and marketing. And it's all just coming up kind of together. You don't want to go lopsided ever when building a business unit or building a company. All the pieces have, uh, are, are connected. And they, you don't want to grow the sales team before you know, get out over your skis on that before you have product engineering or customer success people to support it. So everything has to grow in this really nice balance. Otherwise there's going to be, when it gets lopsided, you, you will feel this thing, right? If you have not enough sellers and too many product and engineering folks, the product and engineering folks will feel like they're working in vain. If it goes the other way, if you have too many sellers and not enough product engineering folks, the sellers are going to have a hard time potentially hitting quota and you'll have attrition there. So maintaining the company as an organism and every, you know all the people within are like different organs within that organism, you need to all grow together as one. And so it's all about just managing that growth, I think is the smartest thing that someone can do if they're managing a team within an organization. Now, operations can have a bit harder time making that argument because we're not directly touching sales unless you've got a deal desk function. And then you can argue you need to scale at a certain pace. But executives often look at it at operations and say you can either scale with people or you can scale with tools and you don't necessarily. Yes. So keeping track of all of your projects looking at those major initiatives that are sitting on a shelf because you can't get to them, figuring out how many hours you can allocate to each project and additional headcount that way. You're going to have to think of yourself as a lawyer and you're going to have to build a case around your argument. It's a, I mean, sales needs to do the same thing. They need to figure out total addressable market, how many accounts need to be available to sustain a sales rep, like all of those things. But operations needs to take a slightly different angle. I think. Do you think so? I would think so in the sense that yeah, right, you, you're saying, in, are you saying in the sense that you don't have all these different functions rep, you know, reporting into you within the, within the ops department? I think the struggle is sales, let's say, triples their headcount and you've still got one operations person. How do you argue what proportion you should be growing? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of tough. Yeah, I've, I'm of the, the thinking that that the ops teams grow, grow with, with revenue, which oftentimes will be congruent with perhaps sales headcount. But ops teams are remarkably powerful within organizations. I think a lot of, a lot of organizations, the, are, the ops team is probably the most influential team with, within the company. And so I, I think it's important for that ops team to be able to handle, you know, have the bandwidth to handle 
the company's growth, current, you know, you know, current revenue and current growth, and then other product initiatives or perhaps geographic expansion or what have you. I love that perspective. I hope all executives are listening. <laughs> so let's pivot to your experience as a hiring manager. What's reasonable and what's out of left field when it comes to negotiating? Where do you stand firm? Where do you give? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say, I mentioned this briefly earlier, base salary is probably the most difficult to make big moves on, typically because that's what's at risk for the company. So if you, if you as the, if you're looking for a job and you're being recruited, you have to think, wait, what, what's the risk of, for this company? And look, every recruiting process is actually an exercise of risk. The company is taking, you know, you try to de-risk things through the recruiting process for both parties, but at the end of the day, you're not going to bake all of the risk out of that, that hiring decision. And so they're all exercises in risk. And so what is at risk for the company is time and your base salary. What's not so much at risk for the company is variable comp, since that's typically tied to actually value delivered and created by the individual. And equity, since that often tends to be time-based and or performance-based, more often than not, of course, it's, it's time-based. But the things that are at risk are the base salary and time. And so I, I would say those, the base salary is probably the, the most difficult thing to try to want to, to negotiate when the offer comes through. Whereas the variable comp and equity, you could even nowadays, post-pandemic situation, you can even start to negotiate work from home days, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is interesting. I mean, we actually just have been having conversations around that. How do we, how do we set the company up and potential, you know, impacts to, to compensation, yay or nay, around, you know, being in the office versus fully remote and what have you. It's a big conversation, you know, and I think Google is struggling with that. And, a lot, you know, fang companies are, are all trying to figure that out. I think McKinsey is probably going to make a lot of money in consulting fees and trying to solve this for them. And what yeah. we'll do is see those reports and, and, and try to get that free, free advice. Well, and that's a great point when you're, Considering compensation, you have to look at the entire package. So if you're interviewing with a really promising startup, it looks like they're definitely on their way to being sold and you can make something out of the equity. That's definitely something you have to consider. That's exactly right. And I would actually even say two more points. Whenever, whenever one goes in to negotiate larger comp, two other things to, to think about. Number one, giving somebody larger comp has real, and any promotion for that matter, that the company gives somebody, it has a ripple effect in that now you've set a precedent. And if someone in a certain uh, level is getting higher comp, let's say you don't have those specific bands like we do here. And there aren't bands, but it's kind of a, a free for all. If you give someone a higher comp, eventually you have to assume that someone else is going to find out about that. <laughs> and then other folks at that level are going to come in saying, well, John Doe or Jane Doe, is at my same level, and I know that they are at this compensation level. Why? Why am I not there? And if you're not able to give that second individual a similar increase, you really risk losing them. And so there are there are these uh, secondary effects of giving somebody a raise, which is how will that potentially be perceived by others? So that's a big thing. The other thing I'll say is this, and this is just human psychology, is that. 
once somebody is in at a higher comp level, that becomes their new normal. Mm-hmm. And so let's say, let's just say you were, you were paid $125,000 and that was your total compensation. And you go in and you ask to be bumped to $150,000, which is quite meaningful, right? 20% increase. That's pretty massive. Well, let's say that was granted. Well, in two, three months time, you are that $150,000 is now your new normal. And maybe your spending went up a bit because that's what humans do. They tend to they just probably spend a little bit more. And now that just becomes, you become numb to that. And so there's not that, you know, you'll have that dopamine rush for a little bit of, of getting that, that raise and that additional compensation, but that, that does fade. It's a little bit of a, a spike and, and a crash, like a sugar rush. And so long-term, I don't necessarily, you know, think that constantly seeking more money and more money is what leads to, to happiness. It's a lot more of the, the softer, you know, the, the softer facets, such as, do you feel at home where you are? Do you feel appreciated and valued? Is your voice heard? Those are the really important elements that I think a company and an individual within that company need to feel. Yes. The cash compensation, honestly, is far from a top priority. Yeah. If you don't feel like you have any autonomy, you're going to burn out regardless of how much you're being paid. But I think a counterpoint to other people hearing about the salary and wanting the same increase, if you can build a case around why you deserve that increase and use projects, numbers, all those sorts of things, you're giving your hiring manager tools to use to set a benchmark for that other person. If they're not performing at a certain level, they can use what you've argued as a framework for that person to earn that next level. They're up-leveling this person. Everybody wins. And I think it kind of takes some of the steam out of that argument that if I give you a raise, I'm going to have to give everybody a raise. I don't really want to do that. That's right. Exactly. Help me help me help you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Andres, thank you so much. This is a great conversation. I think a lot of people will get a lot out of it. Where can people find you online to network? Wonderful. Yeah, you know, I'm happy to, if anyone wants to email me and, and chat or they're about to have a, a, a comp conversation in the middle of one and, and I can be of help to them, I'm, I'm happy to do so. They can just email me directly. I'm, I'm Andres, which is A-N-D-R-E-S at wonderkind.co, not .com. It'll be .com soon, but it's currently .co and Wonderkind is W-U-N-D-E-R-K-I-N-D. And this was a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was super generous. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibermind.com.